Today's uh, text comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 6 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Uh, please bow with me as we pray for the sermon. Father, we thank you for providing us with a written objective word and this account of your ascension into heaven as you are there now and we wait for you, your return. And we ask that you bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So good to see everybody this morning. I hope that you all had a good Christmas. Did you guys have fun? Nice and busy, gift giving and gift getting. So I th hope we all had a blast. It was a wonderful time to remember the birth of Christ, um, to remember all the good things that he's done for us. Thank you so much, too, if you're new here. I'm seeing some new faces. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, stick around after church. We have refreshments. We have cheesecake. And it's not leftovers. You're not getting all of our, our churches, you know, what we couldn't finish eating yesterday. But um, it's so good to have you here this morning. God is good. God is good, and he's good to us. Um, I'm so happy to be able to open God's word with you. It's a freedom that we have in, con in, in our country that we should delight in. Amen. That we can open the word of God and receive from it and be healed by it. Now, you know, it's not an accident that you're here this morning. Uh, maybe you're new, um, here for the first time. Maybe this is your 15th time. Um, but God is uh, faithful. And he knows where you're at. He knows the trials of your life. He knows the victories and joys of your life. And friends, he has been there the whole time. Um, loving and actively caring for you. Whether you've realized it or not, he loves you. He made you, he created you in his image. And I'm so excited to open the word of God um, with you this morning. The past few weeks, we've had a lot of fun going through um, uh, a series that we've called Christus Victor. And it basically means that Christ is the conquering hero. He's the victor. He's the overcomer. Some of us need a victory. And we fight for those victories and they elude us. We don't always seem to get them, but Christ is always victorious. If you need a victor, find it in Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been go going through the past few weeks. We basically discussed uh, in the series that because um, the Bible teaches that we're sinful, that we've rejected God, that we've replaced God with other gods. And that can take a lot of times when we think about idolatry or replacing God with other gods, we think of fish statues or, you know, weird things from 2,000 years ago. And we think, I'm not an idolater. I don't worship um, the, the, you know, pagan god of the sea or whatever. But gods can take lots of different forms. Who do you put your hope in? That's your god. It could be some, some pagan god or it could be money. It could be status. So we've, man is sinful and we've rejected God. We've rejected his love for us. This is the story of scripture, the sad story of scripture. But God promises a hero. God promises a victor. God promises someone who can reconcile you with the God that you have scorned, that I have scorned. And that person is Jesus Christ. We saw in Sermon 1 that God promises at the very dawn of time to Eve that he would provide a conquering savior. We saw in Sermon 2 that the Savior would be none other than God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. 
This wouldn't be just any mere boy or person. It would be God himself. We saw this past Christmas Eve, the birth of the God-man Jesus Christ, born to Mary, announced to shepherds, magi, Simeon, and worshipped among men and angels. And that's kind of what we've been through. um, There's much more that we could say in a series that centers around the words and actions and identity of Jesus Christ. There are a whole classes offered on this in college. So we've only, we've only just kind of cracked the surface of these things. But in spite of what we might have left out, I've tried to unfold for you the promise of a Savior. His, who he is. That he came. The purpose of his arrival. His death and resurrection. I hope that I've made that clear these past few weeks. All of this sort of looks at Jesus through the rearview mirror. Some of you who are Christians who know about this stuff already, or maybe you're, you're not a Christian, but you've heard about some of these things. Yeah, there was a guy named Jesus. People believe he was the Son of God, died for people's sins. It kind of looks at Jesus in the past tense. But as believers, we know that Jesus continues not just his work in the past, but the work in, we expect him to work in the present and to continue working in the future. What marvelous things Christ has done, we think. But scriptures show us that Christ's work and ministry continues right now. And it shows us also great and marvelous things to come. The Bible is loaded with these things. You know that Jesus right now is working. That he is somewhere. If you're a Christian and you believe that he resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ continues to work for his people and for his world. And that's what we want to talk about today. The present works of Christ, which are the result of his death and resurrection. Now that's a broad topic too. I don't know if you know that, but that's a broad topic too. We, we preach one or two sermons on it. We're just going to, again, crack the surface. But I hope that this introduces to you some marvelous promises from God and who Jesus is right now and what it means to our lives right now. I want to show you the hope that we have in Christ. So today and um, probably next week and the week after, we're going to look at the present and future ministry of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Because Christ... God in the flesh lived an innocent life because he was crucified and because he was resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. There is a present and future ministry of Jesus Christ, which are the hope of every believer in Christ. This is our hope, friends. The hope, the present work of Christ. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, you know he appeared to a variety of people. We read this in the Gospels. Um, we, it's implied in the book of Acts, and we even see it in the book of Acts. He did this to encourage his disciples, to teach his disciples. The Gospels even says, say that the reason he appeared to his disciples after he resurrected from the dead was to authenticate his claims as the Son of God, Messiah, God in the flesh. He finally commissions them to live on mission and to live in expectation of things to come. He made known to them that he was going to leave their company on earth and make his place in heaven. Now let's look at John chapter 14. I hope that you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we provide them in the back. Um, And you can even, if you don't have a Bible, you can just take that Bible home with you. It's a gift from us to you. John chapter 14, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I will go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you might be also. In our text, in the book of Acts, we see something very similar that Jesus is saying to his disciples. In verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. You see what we said before, why did Jesus appear to his disciples? To prove to them that he actually had resurrected from the dead. Side note, there are many authenticating 
um, truths that we find in history and in scripture that show to us why we follow Christ, that why we don't have to leave our brain at the front door to be a Christian. Okay? Being a Christian should mean something and it should have reason. And if it doesn't, we shouldn't be Christians. Okay? But, but um, it says in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, he was a, a doctor, a very brilliant man. He wrote the book of, of Acts and the, and the gospel of Luke. He said that there were many proofs of his resurrection, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So when they had come together, they asked him, this is in verse 6, Lord, so they're speaking to Jesus, Jesus had resurrected from the dead, and he is appearing to them. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now this is a little complicated, I'm not going to get too much into it, but the Old Testament promises a kingdom. Um, that would that the that the son of David would reign over for Israel, and it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't come yet. They're asking Jesus, "Is it has it come? When will it come?" And Jesus basically doesn't answer the question. <clears throat> he says, "That's not for you. That's for me to know and for you to find out." <laughs> right? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But here's what you do now: you're expecting Christ to come to establish His kingdom fine. That's all great. We want Christ to come. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So in between the time where Christ ascends to heaven and that time where he returns for us, we're supposed to be witnesses of his great power, his death and resurrection. That's our job description as Christians. That is our mission as Christians. You will receive power to be witnesses. And when he he had said these things in verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparels and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way. According to the scriptures, Christ is presently, right now, preparing a place for his people in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He is not dead. He is not in a grave. He is not some mystical being like the force timely reference he is in heaven in a resurrected body preparing a place for us at the right hand of the father now these two passages alone they don't tell us much they tell they tell us Jesus is in heaven and they tell us he's preparing a place for us but the ministry of Christ is so much more vast than that as we look at other places in the New Testament. I want to look at six present works of Christ, of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, he is presently the universal Lord, the Lord of all creation. If you recall, in the book of Genesis, God told Adam to fill the earth and subdue it, right? To rule over it. The first man that God had created, Adam, then Eve, were married and they were told, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and reign over, rule over the world. God's intention in creating us, mankind, was to have dominion over his created things. But we blew it. We fell. And there was a curse pronounced on us. The God-man, Jesus Christ, was obedient to the Father as opposed to us, who are all rebellious towards the Father. He was obedient to the Father, and as a right of obedience, was given the authority that we should have had in Eden. So when Christ was obedient as the God-man resurrected, he was given absolute authority over all created things, and he sits presently in Ephesians chapter 1 at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. What does this mean? He sits in a position of 
highest honor. Of highest honor. He has all glory, all authority, and all power shared by him and his father. And it's the heavenly throne of which he reigns over the entire universe with its creatures. It's a throne of absolute, unconditional, supreme honor, victory, power, and authority. And we read in Ephesians chapter 1. You say, where is this from, Kyle? I pray in Ephesians 1, this is Paul speaking, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling... What are the riches of the glories of the inheritance of the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believed, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and get this, and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ, upon his ascension, was given absolute authority over all rulers, all kingdoms, all circumstances, all creation. And he sits as king over all things. There are powerful implications of that for us this morning. The power of this world, the temptation that we find in this world. Our fallen desires. Satan. These are all real. These are all still present. But Christ has authority over all of them. He is able to sustain you, friend, in your hour of need. Whether you realize it or not, whether you feel it or not, all members of the universal and invisible church are right now positioned with Christ in heavenly places. If you believe in Jesus, that seat is yours too. Now that's incredible. Because Christ is on the throne, we have a guarantee that we will be with him in heaven, ultimately and finally, and that we have access right now to endure through all trials and temptations. Because he possesses all power, and because we are his children, that power is available to us. Paul continues, Ephesians chapter 2, this will blow your mind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which with he loved us, that's his church, even when we were dead in our sins, he's basically saying, we were train wrecked. We were sinful rebels. We didn't want God, we hated God. And even in that condition, because of his rich mercy, he saves us and he made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that nice? Yeah, we got saved. We all kind of know that. But listen to this. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. The place where Jesus sits that is immovable is the seat that we will share with him. Amen? Friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no power of hell. There is no temptation that is more powerful than the seated Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has overcome and he is all you need. I can't explain why we suffer all the time. I can't explain why we sin and our temptations and why it's a struggle that life can be. I know that loss in life is grievous, and we should grieve in times of loss and temptation and suffering. But I know this too. The one with all authority sits in heaven. He sits in heaven with absolute power and justice, and he will deliver us to that glorious place when he returns. Absolutely. Friends, remind yourself of that. If you're a believer in Christ, please remind yourself that your life is more about than just your job that you work or your kids or your marriage. That Jesus Christ sits in heaven and one day he will return and bring us to that seat with him. Amen? In the face of death, uh, it was D.L. Moody that said he was a famous, he was like the Billy Graham of the 1800s. You guys know who Billy Graham is? Some young people probably are like Billy who? But um, Billy Graham is one of the, the most famous evangelists of probably church history. Um, D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of the 1800s. 
and he was getting old, he was about to die, and he said, you know, one day, you're going to open the paper, one day soon, you're going to open the paper, and you're going to read, uh, old D.L. Moody's dead. He died. He writes, don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. I will be more alive with Christ than I ever was here. The hope of eternal life because Christ is Lord, because Christ sits on a throne and promises us that we will sit with him. Amen? He sits as head over all things to the church in Ephesians 1. He sits as head over Israel in 1 Peter 2.7. He sits as head over every single man and every single created thing in 1 Corinthians 11.3. And he is even the head of all principalities and powers and rulers and angels in Colossians chapter 2 verse 10. As a head of the church, oh friends, he's like a husband to a wife. What does it mean that Christ is head of the church? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that he nourishes us and he cherishes us. Have you ever been cherished by someone? Have you ever been in goofy love? right when you were 15 and you were just in goofy love and you cherished a person and they cherished you and it was unreasonable and ridiculous, right? There's no other word that I can describe for that more or better than cherish. To cherish. It's even in our wedding vows. To love and to cherish. Scripture says that the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the right hand of the Father cherishes his people and he nourishes his people. The general purpose of God in Christ as Lord and head over his church is to, to nourish us. That means to make us healthy, to make us mature, to make us holy, to make us like him. He nourishes us on his word, on the, the, the fellowship of believers. There's different ways that, God, that Christ nourishes us, fellowship with him. But he cherishes us too. Imagine the supreme ruler of all things cherishing you. Say, I don't, you know, I haven't been cherished by many people in my life. You know, I might even be in a marriage right now, and my husband or my wife uh, doesn't—they don't cherish me. Feels like they actually hate me. Well, friend, I got good news because if you believe in Jesus Christ, this moment, the God of the universe, His Son Jesus Christ, who has absolute power over all things, all things cherishes you. He cherishes you this morning. Colossians chapter 2 verse 19 says and holding fast to the head from whom the whole body the head is Christ hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and it grows with a growth that is from God amen Christ loves you you know and I know we don't always feel loved. And I know that our lives sometimes turn out in ways in which we weren't expecting and that we didn't want. But friend, the head, the Lord, the Christ, cherishes you. Amen. He is Lord of all, number one. Number two, he is the great shepherd. He is the great shepherd. In his present seat in heaven, he cares for his people as a shepherd cares for his sheep. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Christ himself said that he came to seek and to save that which were lost. You know, you might, you might not know Christ this morning. And you have a God, a Christ, a shepherd, who is seeking you out. And you can run, and you can run. But friends, can I just encourage you this morning that if you don't know Christ, to sh stop running. Because Christ, your shepherd, wants to bring you into his sheepfold. To care for you, to cherish you, to nourish you like you never have been before. In John chapter 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The present ministry of Christ to and through his church is that we would lay down our lives for lost people to seek them out so that they might know Christ. And then once they come in to nourish them and cherish them 
as a good shepherd would. The present ministry of Jesus Christ is to lead us and to protect us, his sheep. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over all, is our provider, he is our refuge, he is our help, he is our shepherd. Number three, he's the vine. And one final word before his death, Christ teaches his disciples that he is and will always be the vine in relationship to us, the branches. This is John chapter 15. And here we have conditions for fruit bearing in the Christian life. It says that Jesus Christ is the true vine as opposed to false vines. This is very important. There are vines, friends, there are things in your life that are insufficient for giving you life, for providing you life. And without Christ, that idea just sort of eludes us. We're trying to find life without Christ in so many different aspects of life. By having children, by getting married, by getting power or fame or fortune. We look for life in these things, to authenticate, to justify our own existence. But then when we get them, we find that it's not life at all. That it actually brings more death and more misery. But to be properly related to Christ is to have true fruitfulness and abundant life because He is our vine. He is our life. So many times we look for life in the approval of others, don't we? Mom and dad, brother or sister, husband or wife, we need the approval of people. Maybe not them. Powerful people. Teachers. But there's no life there. The only adequate source for abundant life is Jesus Christ, friends. He is the vine. <clears throat> if ever you don't, as a Christian, have abundant life, you might wonder why. Might I suggest to you it is because you are drinking from lifeless water. You have forgotten that all you need for life is Christ. You are looking potentially for life in other places. The approval of others or how much money you make. But only Christ has life. To abide in Christ is to be a branch attached to the vine, Jesus Christ. And friends, you'll never bear fruit if your branch is attached to some other vine. Our life depends on our abiding, our attachment to Jesus. Oh, and how often do we find our hearts attached to some other false hope? Some broken cistern. The resurrected and ascended Lord is the vine. He sits in heaven right now as the vine. And friend, where the branches be attached to the vine. Number four, he is the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father as the chief cornerstone. In relation to all other stones of the building, Christ is the chief cornerstone. That is, he is the foundation of the building. Okay? In Ephesians 2.20 it says, You are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to believers in Christ. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. Then this house is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, some of this language might sound kind of weird, might elude you. Let me try to explain this. <clears throat> Should you not have faith in Christ this morning, here we see that you are strangers aliens to the promises of God. What this passage I think makes clear before anything is that if you don't know Christ please come to know him. Please come to believe in him this morning. Know Christ. You are neither citizens of his heavenly kingdom or members of his household but upon faith in Jesus Christ you will be grafted in the branch that you are attached to another vine will be taken off and grafted into the vine Christ. You will become a, a, a block in the household of God, which the foundation is Jesus. 
Upon faith, you are grafted into the vine, which is Christ. You are among the stones which are built on the foundation stone, which is Jesus. And here, in a few sentences, we learn that all of the promises of God in, from all of the Old Testament, the entire Bible, everything depends on Christ. Not the apostles, not the prophets, not pastors, and friends, not us, not any of us. Christ is the foundation of everything. He is the message, the grand message of the entire Bible. He is the grand message of the entire universe. And friends, he waits for you as the foundation stone. Believe in him. Christ, upon his triumph over sin and Satan, at his death and resurrection, has made sure all the promises of God. That's what it means that he's the foundation stone. You know, anyone can make promises, right? How do we know that they'll happen? Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and seat in heaven guarantees, that's the image of the foundation, guarantees that every promise that God has ever made will happen. Because of what he did. Friends, what's your cornerstone this morning? What's your source and assurance of future life, of present life? Are you on shaky sand? Is the ground shaking? Is your, is your foundation just not working? Friends, come to Christ. You cannot have abundant life without him. Number five, Christ is our great high priest in hope and royal priesthood. Right now, Christ sits in heaven as our great high priest. <clears throat> And here is probably one of the most important aspects of Christ's present work. So if you've been checking out and you haven't been paying attention, that's okay. That happens to me sometimes too. Why don't, why don't we all just hear this one? Because this one's really awesome. He is the great high priest and the royal priesthood. And some of us have absolutely no con, con, like context for a priest except the Roman Catholic Church. We hear priest and that's what we think. It's, but this right here is, is one of the most important ministries of Christ that he presently fulfills for us. Christ is presently the great high priest over all his people, and he never stops making intercession for every single member of his church. Okay? And when I say member of his church, I don't mean member of Refuge Church or member of that church down the road. I mean any person who has put faith in Jesus Christ for all of time. They are a member of his universal and invisible church. Here is no symbol. You know that the other things that we were talking about before were symbols. He's a vine. That's a symbol, right? Jesus isn't actually a vine. He's a, Jesus is the foundation. That's a symbol. But Jesus actually is a priest in heaven. A priest in the Old Testament. You say, what is a priest? A priest in the Old Testament is someone who is qualified to make sacrifices at the altar to mediate between God and man. A priest's chief function in the Old Testament was pr to present sacrifices to God for sinners so that God wouldn't judge those sinners. So the sin of the people would be put on the sacrifice and the priest who went through all these pure um, um, rituals to purify himself so he himself wouldn't be consumed by the holiness and righteousness of God. He would come with that sacrifice so that the, the anger of God, the just anger of God, would be satisfied on that sacrifice. Does that make sense? So all in the Old Testament you see this action, that the priest's chief function was to make sacrifices to God to satisfy his anger towards the people's sin. Instead of it being satisfied on the people themselves. Right? You know that the New Testament says that all of the Old Testament is a shadow of Christ. That anything that you see in the Old Testament, it points to Jesus. And, and, the, and the illustration should be obvious, right? About Jesus Christ, our great high priest. <clears throat> in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Christ is the final and everlasting priest. Why don't we have priests at Refuge Church? Because Jesus Christ was the last priest that we needed. The Old Testament had a whole system of priests. When Jesus came and presented his own body as the sacrifice for man, there was no longer a need to have priests 
priests in the same way as we saw in the Old Testament. He is the final and everlasting peace and the sacrifice of his own body was the final sacrifice needed. Why don't we continue to sacrifice little woolly lambs in the Old Testament? Is my, is my mouth getting dry? Oh, all right. Thank you. No, that's all right. Thank you. Why don't we do this? Why don't we continue to sacrifice sheep and goats and cows like they did in the Old Testament? It's very simple because Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And once he sacrificed his own body, there was no need to make any more sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. You see, we just explained that. In relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the writer of Hebrews is explaining why you see priests in the Old Testament. He says, So also Christ was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever. Hebrews chapter 7. For this priest of the Most High God is first king of righteousness and king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but continues as a priest forever. Jesus Christ, the right hand of the Father, continues his work as priest for us forever. You say, whoa, what does that mean? It means something very simple. The sacrifice he made by the blood he shed will always be present in heaven, satisfying God's anger towards sin. And that's beautiful because, friends, if the blood of Christ doesn't satisfy it, the only other satisfaction that God gets is our eternal destruction in hell. Oh, let your sins be placed on the Lamb of God. Friends, let them be put on Christ and not on yourself. The former priests were many in number. It says in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 23, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So here are these priests. There were a lot of them. But they die, right? But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You see, when he died and was resurrected from the dead, he was given an everlasting priesthood. He is able, listen to this, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. There is never a moment, a second, that ever goes by that Jesus Christ doesn't continually defend us in the grand court of heaven. We are forever and eternally cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh friends, let that be your hope if it's not this morning. Because otherwise, you're going to be your own priest. And your blood cannot satisfy the wrath of God. The priest has no end of days, and he can always intercede for us as sinners. And, 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 and the implications are grand, because it, even, as, even as Christians, if I fail tomorrow, he continues to make intercession for me. He can, that blood applies still to all of my past, present, and future sins. And God, praise God for that. Because the priest has no end of days, he always makes intercession for us. And because this priest is without sin himself, his sacrifice is one time permanent and binding. Jesus only needed to die and present his blood once, is the point. And that is able to save us all of us. There is um, a doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church, and I don't mean to um, sound unkind to Roman Catholics, but basically, when they take communion, they believe that they are re-sacrificing Jesus. The broken body and spilled blood, that they're re-sacrificing Christ. Friends, only one sacrifice was necessary. When we take communion, we believe that it's simply a symbol 
it, that we it, it's a it's a ritual of sorts that we that we use to remember what he has done the work that has been finished that one time work verse 26 of Hebrews 7 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens he has no need like those other high priests in the Old Testament to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the other people since he did this once for all when he offered himself see the high priest because the high priest was a sinner would have to make sacrifices for himself right Jesus didn't need to do that because he was without sin. For the law appoints men in their own weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later to the law appoints a son who has been made a priest perfect forever. The man Jesus Christ is the final mediator between God and man. The final priest between God and man. He presents his own body, his own blood, which is the required price of redemption that satisfies the anger of God towards all of our sins. If you sinned a hundred times, the blood of Christ is enough. If you did it a million times, the blood of Christ is enough. And you know what else? Let's say, hypothetically, all of the earth sinned 50 hundred million more times. Jesus wouldn't have to spill a drop of blood more. The blood of Christ is absolutely adequate to cover every single sin that has ever been or will be committed. And you say, yeah, let's just, let's, let's do this then. Let's sin it up. Right? Like it's adequate enough. Well, the Bible says that <clears throat> he has saved us to good works. If you have put faith in Jesus Christ, that will never be your attitude. Because he's given you eyes to see and new life. The man, Jesus Christ, is the final mediator. Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Isn't that incredible? You see, the blood of bulls and goats was not adequate to save us from our sins, but the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed on the cross, is a perfect one-time offering that only needs to be made once, and it's applied to your life and covers all your sin the moment you repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Do you want the Lord Jesus to never remember your sins anymore, to bury them in the deepest sea? Then, friends, come to him. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, how much more will it purify your conscience and mine from dead works to serve the living God? Your blood's not enough, friend. Our works are dead. They don't satisfy God's anger to sin, and they don't save us, but the blood of Jesus Christ does. The work that he did for you on your behalf covers all of it. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ died so that his people who have faith in him would receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. God makes a promise in the Old Testament. He says, "If I'm going I'm to <clears throat> bless you forever. But if you break this covenant, you'll be, you'll be cursed with death. We broke the covenant. We're cursed with death. That's the Old Covenant. What it's saying here is there's a new covenant that rescues us from that curse. That gives us new life. In verse 25 in Hebrews chapter 9, he does not himself offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin 
once and for all. Wow. John, you say, wow, that's a lot, dude. Okay. Let me simplify it for you. This is what John says. The blood of Jesus Christ is the propitiation for all of our sin. Propitiation is a big fancy word. It just means satisfaction. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfies God's anger towards sin and all of it. Amen? He is our priest. Oh, and by the way, because he is our priest, because he sits in heaven forever making intercession for us, we are called, every member of the body of Christ who's put faith in Christ, a royal priesthood. <clears throat> in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have, as believers of Jesus Christ, direct access to God the Father in heaven through Christ. We don't need to confess our sins to a priest for them to be forgiven. That's what priests did in the Old Testament, right? It's no longer intact. We go, confess your sin to the Lord, Scripture says. It does say to confess your sins one to another, but not for purposes of satisfaction, you see? We don't confess our sins to satisfy the wrath of God to each other. We confess our sins to be sanctified. Do you see the difference? To grow, in other words. There's a big difference there. As believer priests, we make sacrifices. And what are those sacrifices? They're not like the ones in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we sacrifice our own bodies in Romans 12.1. That is, our lives and our purposes are not our own anymore. We make sacrifices of, of praise to God in Hebrews 13. To acknowledge his perfections and works and grace. We make sacrifices of good works in Hebrews 13, 16. Our service to God as we submit to his divine will. And we make the sacrifice of possession, of possessions to be used for God's glory. The believer is to sacrifice his possession regularly, proportionately, sacrificially, liberally, and cheerfully. While trusting in God to supply all his needs. And as believer priests, not only do we make sacrifices, but we make intercessions. We pray. As believers positioned in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, we are pronounced a royal priesthood, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We have the right to be in the very presence of God the Father and plead to God as Christ has made this our right by his blood in Hebrews 10. What a privilege. Come on. That's great. <laughs> that we have access to God through Christ. That our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. That Jesus makes intercession for us this moment in heaven so that we can have relationship with him and his father. That's your new position in Christ. And friends, if you don't know Christ, that's the life you can have. <clears throat> Finally, number six. Number five, he is the priest. Number six, he is the bridegroom. This is my last point. Christ, in his present work at the Father's right hand, he sits as bridegroom to his bride, the church. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ, are wed to the Lord Jesus. You are his bride, and he is our bridegroom. Wow. Now, if you're like kind of weird, a little sicky, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Okay? The New Testament pictures the church as the bride, not yet joined to her husband. Did you know that's why we were, we were created? Did you know that the reason you want to marry a woman or a man is because you ultimately want to marry God? To have perfect intimacy and loving relationship with your creator, that's why he made you. And everything else in life, all of our desires, they're there to point us to the Lord. He's our bride. 2 Corinthians 11.2 For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We're his bride. He's our bridegroom. 
And Christ, we already read this, is preparing a place for us in John 14. If you believe in Jesus Christ, our bridegroom is preparing his place and we wait for him to return for us, his people, his bride. The bride in scripture is pictured as being presented in the Father's house in due time. We don't do weddings like this anymore. But in the ancient Near East and even in the, Near, in, in the East today, weddings still happen like this. Where there is a betrothal. Two people are technically married, but they haven't come into covenant union yet. right? So the husband usually goes to prepare a place for the bride until that marriage is consummated. And sometimes it can take months. Years even. This is how the ancient Near East did weddings. And scripture pictures the church as waiting for her bride who prepares her, his, the place, the home for us. It says in Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. Friends, good news this morning, that if you know Christ, you are his bride. And that has to mean, in my mind, that you are loved beyond measure. That you are cherished beyond measure. More than you've ever felt when you were in puppy love, right? More than, more than you'll ever feel in this life. That the Lord loves you and wants to be joined to you. In this present age, as we live out our Christian lives, we are to live in the anticipation of that future joyous occasion where all believers who are in Christ will stand complete with every beauty and grace. Amen. Let me close. Right at this moment, Christ sits as Lord at the right hand of the Father. He is our great shepherd. He is the vine. He is the cornerstone. He is our great high priest and he is our bridegroom. Jesus has overcome, friends. He is victorious. He is all those things and more. Church, abide in the vine. Make intercession as you are right as a royal priest of the Most High God. Anticipate the coming of the bridegroom. Surrender to his loving and gracious lordship. Rest on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, because he presently lives to make intercession for you. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, what possibly could be better than Jesus Christ? He presented his own blood for you. He died in your place. If you believe in him. What could be better than this? There is no bride or bridegroom better than him. There is no greater vine or foundation. There is no greater love or wholeness. Would you come to him this morning? Would you believe in Jesus Christ? And at that moment of faith, that very moment of faith where you turn from your sin and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, he will ever live to make intercession for you. And that place being prepared in heaven is now a place being prepared for you. Come to Christ, friend. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. God, we love you, and we thank you so much for all your goodness and kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.